The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy, because on it he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. Genesis, the second chapter. Welcome. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I want to talk with you about this journey toward heaven. Literally, this journey begins here. It begins with Adam and Eve and God. And God wants something. God wants to create sacred space. Sacred space that he can share with Adam and Eve. He comes in the cool of the day and he walks with them after their day of work. He then comes and he blesses all of the seventh day. He is creating, according to Abraham Heschel, the famous Jewish writer, God established a cathedral in space, in time. A cathedral where in the Garden of Eden they could come together and spend the day with the Lord God of heaven. Now, most of us would create a a memorial or a monument in time and space together. But, But God wanted to create a sacred time where he could bring his children, his sons and daughters, where he could bring the love of his heart into this sacred space that they could share together. Now, God has all of the universe to care for. So he's coming and just establishing space where Adam and Eve can enter into him and where he can enter into them. Then when the fall came, the Sabbath was broken. The sacred space was violated. God could no longer come and walk with them in the cool of the day. He could no longer come and spend the Sabbath with them. We have no record of the Sabbath being kept again until the children of Israel are brought out of Egypt and are brought into the desert. And then in the desert, God decides he's going to establish once more that precious space called the Sabbath. And he does so and establishes it by bringing the bread of heaven, a symbol of Jesus, that they would gather each day 
on their knees, humbling them. He could have spread it on a table, but instead he put it on the ground, because he wanted them to be early in the morning on their knees before him. And then he tells them, On the sixth day, they're to gather twice as much as they gather every other day, because on the Sabbath there will be no manna. Instead, they are to stay quietly in their tents, and they are to rest. The word rest, cessation, but it also means more than that. It means a place like a bedroom. Literally, it is one day of rest. Now, we think of rest immediately as cessation, but we don't think of it as bedroom. An important distinction, because God is creating this 24-hour period of time, because during that time, he wants to be intimate with the children of Israel. Now, we need to talk just for a minute about what it takes to become intimate. Let's go to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. We'll begin with chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I've puzzled over this scripture and tried to understand it for many years, but I'm beginning to understand what he's saying, and I want to share that with you today. When a man and a woman see each other, there is a spark that can occur. We call that spark love. We are of a, an attraction to that person. There is, there is energy with that person. Now, as that spark comes into both of their lives, they have to make a decision. And that decision is, will I intentionally 
begin to open up the space of my life in order to include this other person. If that decision is not made, and the other person does not begin to open their life to invite you into their life, the spark will quickly be extinguished. There must be a spark between the two of you. Isn't that what all the romance is about? But that spark then, in order to burst into flame and bring the heat, needs to have intentionality so that I begin now to open my life to this person. I begin to share with them who I am, and they share with me who they are. And as we begin to share, there is a great hunger that rises in the soul that says, I must know more about her or him. I must cut aside some of my obligations so that I can learn to know this person. Now, in the world, we have short-circuited this process. The spark comes, the kisses begin, and quickly most will jump into bed. Well, now they're saying something with their bodies that has nothing to do with establishing a healthy relationship. It has just the opposite effect. The spark will not last very long. And so the intentionality does not begin to kick in. Instead, what happens is the man is looking for something. And as he searches for this something that his heart is hungry for and his body is dying for, he finds a woman who has a spark. He likes the way she looks. He likes the way she smells. He just likes how she is, and so he wants to take her to bed. And, and she likewise likes how he looks. And they go to bed with each other, and the spark burns out, and they move on looking for something else. But sexuality in marriage is not about getting what I want. It's not about reaching out and taking something to fill an empty spot in my soul. Just the opposite. Sexuality in marriage is a wonderful celebration of a couple that has opened their lives to each other with intention. And as they open their lives to each other with great intention, they begin to know one another. And then the second phase of, of a relationship begins to kick in. And that second phase is where we become honest friends. And friendship is not built... How do I put this? Friendship is not built on hunger. Friendship is not built by consuming. Friendship between a man and a woman begins to build and grow as that man or that woman intentionally opens up the secrets of their hearts and share them with each other. And then friendship begins to develop. And friendship grows when there is trust, when there is integrity when there is 
the earning of respect one with the other. Friendship grows when there are very clear boundaries between one and the other. Friendship grows, and as the friendship grows, intimacy grows. So as the parts of your heart are shared, and that other person listens, and then you listen to them, that heartwarming intimacy begins to grow as a plant. Now, it can quickly be destroyed if one lies to the other, or if one does not keep one's commitment to the other, or that friendship can be destroyed if there is disloyalty. I saw one couple, the spark between them was ferocious. They were totally in love. And then she went off and had sex with another person. The budding friendship that was just beginning was utterly destroyed. All trust was destroyed. And they have no future. Because lying and cheating and lack of trust and lack of integrity destroy friendships. If a person tries to grab the other person and fill their heart with them, and we call that codependency. It destroys a relationship. In other words, the man is a person, the woman is a person, and they have between them this shared space that they have opened. If that shared space is very, very small, there is very little chance of any intimacy growing in that relationship. And the danger is the spark of attraction will be exhausted and extinguished before there is a sufficient friendship to carry them. Now, the next part of this, the third step in love, is when a man and a woman begin to sacrifice themselves for the other. Where they see the needs of the other as being vital, they are interested in growing closer and walking together. And this is where we begin to see the best and the worst in the other person. You know, when we when we have that spark and we come together, the tendency is to make this uh, romantic part of our heart like a, a YouTube presentation. It's, it's all polished and clean. But when we begin to move into the deep friendship, we begin to see the other for who they really are. And then the sacrifice begins as one sacrifices for the other to cover over the broken parts of their hearts and their lives. All of us have broken parts. When a man and a woman come together in this shared space, everything they are comes into that space. The broken-hearted relationship with the husband or the wife, 
the bitterness and the loss, the brokenness, it's all there inside of that space, that sacred space between a man and a woman. Now, some people get married just based on the spark and sexual attraction, and that kind of marriage probably won't last. However, if the friendship grows, the marriage will last longer. But a marriage is not secure until there is mutual sacrifice between the two, until the man is like a covering for the woman, and the woman, the woman loves the man and submits to him because of the quality of sacrifice the man makes for her and the quality of the friendship that deepens. And so this sacred space that's been created between a man and a woman, according to Ephesians, the fifth chapter, represents the profound mystery of Christ and the church. In other words, God is interested in opening a space in his heart that is large enough for you to enter. And he wants you to open a place in your heart where he can enter. And yes, there will be great attraction when a, a newborn person, as they, they know Jesus Christ and they're excited, they've been born from above. But now, a friendship has to grow between your heart and God's. That sacred space has to, has to be developed and, and opened. And, and you have to learn about God. And God, he already knows all about you. But he's chosen you. And if you spend your time out in your personal space away from God, and you open your heart to all different kinds of people who do not share the same love with God, you will have a very small place that you have allowed God to enter. And God wants us to open up that space to encompass everything we are, so that literally everything we do is going to be done in that sacred space with the God of heaven. The most wonderful marriages have opened that sacred space between a man and a woman. They've opened that space wide. And then they say, and we want this space that we've opened to be in Jesus Christ. We want Jesus to stand between us. We want to be in God's space his sacred space. And we want the sacred space between us to be completely in the space of God's heart. You see why I call it sacred space. What God is doing with the children of Israel is he set a spark in their hearts. He has a spark in his heart. He has 
He has love for these people. He has compassion for these people. He has intentionality with these people. He intends to make them his bride. He is utterly committed to sacrificing himself for these people. But now, there is not a reciprocal relationship that has been established yet. The children of Israel live in their slavery space. They have a slavery mentality. They're broken and they're hurt. They've lost their babies in Egypt. They've been whipped and beaten in Egypt. And now God has ignited a spark in their heart of hope, saying, we can be free. And so they follow him out into the desert. Perhaps they would not have crossed that Red Sea had the army of Pharaoh not been behind them, but but God knew he had to drive them out into that wilderness because his purpose was to begin creating sacred space with these children of Israel where friendship could grow between them, where, where they would begin to sacrifice for him, where they would begin to, to trust him, where they would find that he was worthy of their love. And so we have the children of Israel coming out into this desert and complaining against the Lord God of heaven grumbling, angry. They could have chosen to trust God. They'd seen the mighty miracles performed for them. They had seen the awesome deeds of crossing through the Red Sea. But they were hungry. And they were grumbling. And so God comes and says, Look, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you, and tonight I'm going to feed you fi- uh, the. I'm, I'm going to feed you the chicken. I'm going to give you the quail. So God is reaching out in compassion and love to these people who don't trust Him, and He's saying, "Look, I'll give what you. I'll give to you what you've asked for. I'll give you what you want. I will." I will invite you into my space, my sacred space. Moses and Aaron, they say, why are you grumbling against us? We've only done what God told us to do. And God shows up. The glory of God shows up in the desert. They can see the presence of God. Now he's promised them that he will not bring on them any of the diseases of the Egyptians if they will trust him. So God gives them the bread. And then he tells them, now tomorrow there won't be any bread, so gather twice as much and get ready to enter into the bedroom with me. They have no clue what God's talking about. They go out to gather their food as usual. And God says, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? In other words, when will you choose to believe that I love you, 
that I want an honest relationship with you, and I want to sacrifice myself for you, but I want you to sacrifice yourself for me too. It's a reciprocal relationship. So the people rested on the on the seventh day Sabbath. They called the bread, what is it in the Hebrew? What is it we translate as manna? Tasted like wafers made with honey. I mean, Jesus could have given them something that tasted like castor oil. Frankly, my favorite cookie for many years has been these delicate wafer cookies. Wafers made with honey. I mean, he gave them a totally balanced, nutritious meal. Now, the whole Israelite community in Exodus, the 17th chapter, set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped at Rephidim. And you've guessed it, there was no water. There was no water for the people to drink, and they began to quarrel with Moses, saying, Give us water to drink. The people were thirsty. They grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered, Moses, walk on ahead. Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa, means testing, and Meribah means quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. That is a way of God. That is a way of God. God is inviting these people into his sacred space. He has isolated them in the desert. He has shown that he intends to carry them safely, literally in his arms. He's promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. He's promised them everything their hearts desire but they have not opened their hearts to open a sacred space where God can enter into them. They are quarrelsome, they are angry, they are selfish, and this is, frankly, the condition of man. And until a person is willing to begin intentionally to open their heart to God, there can be no blessed sacred space between them.
many of you are happy with where you're at. You don't hunger for more of Jesus. You don't seek after him to find out how to open your heart and receive him into the space of your being. And God comes. And he opened wide at the cross his arms. And he invited all of mankind to enter into that sacred space with him. We find, and I'll just turn to it quickly, I wasn't going to cover this today, but I think it's appropriate that I do cover it. If you go with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, we're going to look at the third chapter. Let me read it for you. This is verse 7. Hebrews 3, verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Literally, the word harden in the, in the Greek means to render stubborn. In other words, don't let what God is trying to do cause you to become more and more stubborn and hard-hearted. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for forty years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation or why I was grieved with that generation. When you open your heart to someone, when you open sacred space and you intentionally begin to share, and that other person does not respond. Your heart is grieved. Your heart is saddened. Because you see what could be. But for whatever reason, that person just hardens their heart. That's what was happening. God was being grieved by their hardening of heart. And I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Literally, they shall never enter my reposing down. They shall never enter my abode, my room. I could also put it, and they shall never enter my sacred space. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, faithless, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be rendered stubborn by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt and with whom he was angry for forty years? 
Was it not with those he sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, therefore the promise of entering his place of repose, his bedroom, still stands. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we have also had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Those who heard it did not combine it with intention. Those who heard this gospel proclaimed did not make a decision that they would open the space of their heart, that they could become one with Jesus Christ. Now, with couples, that precious energy, that precious sacred space can become dead space. I see couples sitting together at a restaurant, and perhaps the whole meal they'll not speak more than two or three words, and then only about the menu or some casual thing of the day, but they're is simply nothing safe they feel they can talk about because their hearts are filled with judgment against the other. They're angry with their partner or they're bored with their partner because there's no energy between them. Energy comes as we share the intimate details of our heart. There's a question that I always ask those who are close to me. I ask them, what do you need? What do you need from me? What do you want from me? And then I listen for their answer. Some people are unable to answer that question, and that's a sure sign that there's no friendship built between. We all have needs and wants, and it's vital that we not bring accusations or judgments against the person we are close to. It is much, much more important that we ask them the question, what do you need? What do you need? What can I help you with? How can I serve you? How can I sacrifice myself for you? When those kinds of questions are asked, what kinds of problems are you facing in your heart that we could talk about that I might encourage you and support you? When you begin to ask these kinds of questions, the juiciness of the relationship flows back in and the old dry bones are made alive again. But if you're keeping score over the other one's wrongs, you're accusing them of not loving you sufficiently, you're accusing them of, of being disloyal to you, then the relationship is dying. The same is true with the Lord Jesus. He invites us into his bedroom, not to accuse him, but to trust him, 
to intentionally put myself in his hands and say, Jesus, I love you. Now, I hear many people say, Jesus, I love you. But what they really mean is, I have an interest in you, and there's a spark in my heart, and I have some emotion around this issue. But they're utterly unwilling to go ahead and build a friendship of trust with Jesus because they love their sin. And they've created such a small space for God to operate in their hearts and their lives that nothing real can take place between them, and there is certainly no laying down of my life in sacrifice for Jesus when I'm only a little tiny space that I've opened for the possibility that Jesus could come in and dwell with me. The message, it says, was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith, with certainty, with expectation. They did not combine it with an intention of trusting in Jesus. Now it says, Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my bedroom. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all of his work. And again in the passage above he says, They shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. In other words, they broke the friendship. They violated the friendship. Therefore God spoke again and set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, and, and it was said, Today if you harden, today if you hear his voice, and do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. The Sabbath was given at creation as one day. We call it the seventh-day Sabbath. The one-day Sabbath was restored to the children of Israel. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the Sabbath is a Sabbath unto the Lord. And no work was to be done. This was to be a time of intimacy with God. But after Jesus came, Jesus invited us into the full presence of the Father. 
He offered us marriage. Marriage comes to a couple who've had that spark between them and who then have built a relationship, a friendship. They've not violated that friendship with broken trust. They've not violated that relationship by going to other lovers. They have entered into that divine, holy space between them. And it has become vibrant and alive, and they're wed. They're made husband and wife. They become one. There is now everything in the circle between them. Oh, they're still a person. He's a person. She's a person. But now between them is this sacred space. And the seventh day was saying, Now, open your hearts to the sacred space. Bring into the sacred space all that you love, everyone that you treasure. Bring into this space all of your experience. Bring into this space all of your brokenness, all of your sadness all of your depression, bring into the sacred space with God everything that you have experienced to this point. And trust Jesus now to love you in such a manner that your heart is healed. Bring your marriage into this sacred space of God. Bring the sacred space between you and your wife into this space with God. Let God stand between you. See, when we begin to walk in this way, the glory of God comes down. The glory of God comes down. He doesn't want us to walk around dumb, unconscious like animals. He doesn't want us to just be concerned about food and water. He doesn't want us to just be concerned about housing He doesn't want us to be concerned about anything except entering into that divine space that he has granted us entry into by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures say that Jesus will circumcise our hearts. He will cut out of our hearts all that is of sin or darkness. He will cut away all that brings pain and anguish to our hearts. The promise is that when we reach that land on the other side, all tears will be wiped away. There will be no more sadness or crying. God is love. What is love? Love is God. Oh, I could say much more. Love is peace. Love is joy. Love is healing. Love is growing. Love is laughing. Love is sharing. Love is trust. Love is integrity. Love is righteousness. Love is innocence. Love is God. When you begin to talk about love, it gets so deep you can't even begin to express it in words. The Holy Spirit expresses His love in groanings because there are no words adequate. 
His love for you is so great that when you grieve his heart, he groans. When you turn back to your sin, he groans. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How do we even talk about this? I'm unwilling to keep the circle close around myself. I choose to deliberately open my heart to God. I choose to deliberately and with intention commit myself to his sacred space. I with deliberate haste bring into that circle everyone I care about. I deliberately bring into that space this lost world. And I plead for the revival of God's power to break out and save the souls that are so lost. No soul is beyond redemption. You're not beyond redemption. If you will deliberately choose to open your heart, intentionally choose to allow God to tell you about himself, and if you will intentionally tell yourself your story to God, closeness will come between you that is not based on some cheap emotion. It will grow deep. It will be real. Five minutes. And the roots of your heart will sink deep into Jesus Christ. Now, very quickly, let's go back to Exodus, the 17th chapter, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And they had to go out and fight them. Why? I thought God was carrying these children of Israel to the promised land. They grieved his heart. And he used the Amalekites as a rod to whip them because they would not believe in him. They would not trust him. And so he brought the Amalekites, this warlike, wicked people, desert people, he brought them to attack, to frighten these children of Israel, that they might perhaps come to their senses and say, I must have this living God of heaven. He is my protector. He is my guardian. God will bring into your life judgments, punishments, discipline, because he wants you to come close to him. There are some people that I care deeply about, and when they grieve my heart, I try to talk about it. And then they reject talking about it. Then I pull back. I let them have some space and distance so that they can decide what they really want. And if they don't want a relationship with me, that will grieve my heart, but it will be all right. That's how God walks with us. I could not understand for many years why I would be very close to the Lord, and then it seemed as though 
He told me to do something, and he went on vacation. And I was left alone. I've since learned that one of God's key ways, before he brings the punishment of the Amalekites, is that he withdraws. He gives us space that he might test us and know what was in our heart. He wants to know, will you enter into that space, that sacred space of his heart, and will you trust him? Will you not grumble and complain and not bring accusations? Will you trust Jesus Christ with your life? Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for today. I pray that this message has been clear to the hearts of your people and that they will decide now to enter fully into that sacred space of your love. Lord Jesus, thank you. I pray in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. To live is Christ And to die is gain There is no
To live.